This podcast is brought to you by Ideate and Execute. Do you want to drive innovation in your organization, futurize your enterprise, ideate massively valuable new products, or execute them to market? Then contact us today at ideateandexecute.com and get started. Why listen to the past when you can listen to the future? Welcome to the Think Future podcast, broadcasting from deep in the heart of Silicon Valley, California. We focus on innovation, startups, and the future, not necessarily those and not necessarily in that order. Here's your host. So, uh, Todd, tell us a little bit about uh, your practice and, and what you do. And I don't know, is, is practice the right word or is there a different, is there a different term that I should be using? Sure. I mean, I, I guess like you, I use all kinds of terms and it just depends yeah. on what, what term my client uses to describe it. And I usually go with that. But yeah, it's, it is a practice, I suppose you could say, um, because you get better at it over time. Uh, That's what they always tell me about yoga. They say, you know, like, don't call yoga, you know, uh, fitness or, or, or whatever. It's, it's a practice. It's a hmm. practice because you, you just continuously get better. You don't, there's, there's no particular goal in mind other than improving yourself. Mm-hmm. I like that. Should adopt that mentality with because <laughs> I tend to be the other. So I, I use one of those charts, you know, where you have a you have your your previous high and you're trying to beat it all the time. Yeah, motivates yeah. me, but uh, I'm not sure it's necessarily the best for my mental health. It works for me though. I, I do that too. <laughs> it's like, am I doing better than I did before? I mean, it's kind of like when you, nowadays, you know, they hear, I hear about this. I mean, I don't have any kids that are young enough to be in, in soccer or anything else, but I, I hear that they're not keeping score anymore. So there's no, they, they've sort of reduced the whole uh, piece of competition. But the yeah. problem with that is, is that how, how are you going to know if you're getting any better? If you don't measure it, you don't, you don't know if you're improving. And of course, you know, all the parents and all the kids internally keep score anyway, right? So <laughs> I think it's just a human human thing and it's like so many times we try to step away because we think oh we're gonna we're gonna do this better we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna improve this you know mentally uh, yeah. but I think what happens is that you know human beings basically just fall back on human nature eventually mm-hmm. no matter no matter what kind of changes we try to make you know we yeah. fall back on human nature and you have to work with human nature as opposed to mm-hmm. against it to really yeah. make these changes happen but you would know that better than me well I mean I'll be honest that is that is why I keep score when I go to exercises because I've tried it the other way and what happens is I think yeah I did I worked hard I, I tried to lift those weights really well that time and I felt exhausted yeah. but then if I if I measure it I find that something changes it's like I, there's this little goal if I can just get that one more it's like having a personal trainer yeah. instead of the chart sitting in front of me telling me this is how you did last time exactly uh, exactly yeah but with uh, productivity you know that's what I try to do to, to the extent that a business owner can tolerate this because um it is it, when you practice productivity, it is a little bit uncomfortable, if, at, at least at first, as mm-hmm. you adapt to the mindset that we're going to actually try to accomplish something by a date. And yes, stuff is going to go wrong. Yes, your plans might have to adjust a little bit. But usually, you know, when you look at why a business is not achieving the kind of results that they want, well, it's always one of two things. It's either your plan is no good mm. or your execution of the plan is no good and 80 percent of the time or more it's the execution side you know it's like we never get to the end of the plan to know for sure to be able to say with any level of certainty whether that plan was 
good or bad because we didn't finish it. We got shiny object syndrome and we shifted to something else when we were about 30% of the way done. Or in the worst case, 90% of the way right. done. More and more, it seems that we're in the information age, which gives us access to better plans all the time. And we see people within our industry, people we follow, sending us emails about, oh, you know, I just did this huge test and I found that this method works better than anything else I've ever tried. And so we switch repeatedly, you know, yeah. and never actually get much traction with the kind of thing that the market values. And of course, the, the market values completed products, completed services. Exactly. If you think about it, we're kind of in the age of distraction, right? Everything, try, there's constant, things are constantly distracting us. And that's right. why when, I, when you think about, actually, I'm curious to know, how, how do you measure productivity? I mean, is it just sort of, here's a block of things I need to do, and then mm -hmm. they're done? Or is there some right. percentage towards them or something like that? Because yeah. you constantly have this, you know, FOMO, right? FOMO is totally right. real. It's like, oh, this is yeah. new, or this is, or should I change my marketing to be like this? Because this guy, you know, made a ton of money yeah. doing this. Or should I change my marketing to do that? And it's like, oh, you know, how do you keep people, how do you stick people to the plan? How do you keep them from getting yeah. distracted in, these, in this day and age? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Well, first of all, how do you define it? I, I personally go back to kind of the business principle of one goal to money, which means until you've produced something that is finished to the extent that it is generating uh, money, and then that can just be productivity improvements. You know, you know if, for example, you're implementing a new system within your business to be able to do something more efficiently. The customer is not aware of it, but it allows you to deliver the product or service to your customer more efficiently. Then to me, that's like, okay, that's a one goal to money. So the, the problem that I see a lot of entrepreneurs get into is that we spread our energy too thin and it's, you know, it's like we have only so much energy and we can create this glow. It's enough to grow some trees over the course of 20 years, but it's just too diffuse mm. compared to the laser that we need to be able to get stuff done to where someone says, you know, what you just created there is valuable to me and I'm willing to part with some of my hard earned energy and income in order to make that trade with you. So I define it as, did you finish something that we can look at it? We can say, now your business has ratcheted up. So this concept of ratcheting success, instead of, you know, I just continuously run on the hamster wheel and we just barely, you know, manage to, to break even every month as a business, you know, as much as you can, if you can get business owners to start thinking of what can we put in place where we say, now that's done, that new product or service is operational. Now we can build off of that to do the next thing. And so typically, you know, people do like annual planning and I've come to default more to the kind of uh, shorter term planning with artificial constraints. Um, for me, often it's, I'll just recommend someone start treating a year, like 12 weeks, similar to what Brian Moran described in his book by that name, The 12-Week Year, where instead of seeing 12 weeks as, oh, just part of a, it's a quarter and it's just part of a year, instead to look at it and say, that's it. If you didn't finish something within this 12-week time frame, then you accomplished nothing. And Whoa. Not, not to see it as- <laughs> That's something. That is, that, uh, is, that is serious. <laughs> it, it does. It changes your mindset, you know, and, and because the typical mindset is, in January, you set some big goal and it's exciting. End of January comes, you haven't accomplished much. But you say to yourself, oh, we've got plenty of time. You know, and you continue to fool yourself that way until November, December, you kick things into gear. And then you have sort of a half celebration that, well, we kind of got some stuff done here in the last two months. Versus when you shorten that, you create what I call artificial constraints. It's, to me, that's just the, that concept that if whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, if you shrink down the amount of time that you have available, 
to finish it, that you're more likely to to finish it because it's human nature to respond to deadlines, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, have you read, you must've read Dan Pink's, Pink's When. Have you read that yet? You the, know, that's on my list. <laughs> that's one of those things that I very carefully choose which books I'm going to read. That one's been on my list for a while, but hasn't made it it's, to the top. It's, it's almost exactly what you said. Basically, uh, when you talk about giving deadlines to anybody, mm-hmm. no matter what it is, it's an individual or a team, they know, don't even really start working in earnest until halfway through. Right. So if you say um, you got two weeks to do this, they won't do anything for a week. If you say you have four weeks to do this, they won't do anything for two weeks. They'll just sort of, you know, screw around for a while. They'll talk like if it's a team, they'll, you know, they'll get to know each other. They'll do things. They'll go, oh, we got plenty of time, plenty of time. And only halfway through do they realize, oh, crap, I got no time left. We got to get get on this. So if you really want something done, you know, in, in a particular amount of time, you just have to take that into account. So you just like right. tighten up all the deadlines. And the reality is, is that people will meet those deadlines. They'll just work harder to get to them. And that's kind of like what I've always said about the future of work is that, you know, work, especially corporate work nowadays is so full of filler, right? It's tons of filler in corporate work. You yeah. know, you, you, you commute, you get to the office, you, 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 you talk to all your coworkers, you know, you have meetings that, you know, don't go anywhere. They're big wastes of time. You go for lunch, you get like, you spend, you know, 10 hour days in these offices and you really only done maybe like two or three hours of work. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we need to, if we could somehow figure out how to compress that and, yeah. and do more work in that time, or maybe, you know, get people to work half days, but pay them the same amount, right. but force them to do that for that four hour block of work, yes. then they might actually be more productive. So you find that too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to me when you look at company, uh, company, a country like Germany where the average work day is typically around six hours instead of eight, and yet they have some of the highest productivity um, per person who's putting out that effort. It does tell you something about how the human mind works, you know. Um, but also, uh, uh, like near Eyal's book, Indistractable, you know, you look at um, one of the, the keys that he talks about in his book is just how hard it is, even with good intention to follow through on, I'm going to really focus now. And so he talks about making pre-commitments and this is something I've been learning actively, like how to get even better at this. Um, pre-commitments would be things like, uh, you know, some of the software programs that don't allow you to log into certain time wasting, uh, applications. If, if for your business, that is time wasting, uh, Facebook, for example, some people use that for business, all day. But for those who don't, you know, something where you say, I'm going to block this next two hours. I'm going to prevent myself from doing that. Turning off your phone notifications. I like to tell people, you know, that, you know, there's this sensation that we have to be uh, available. And, and that's because we don't want to let people down. Um, but really you're letting people down by not getting stuff done by not mm. producing. So I'll turn off notifications from my phone and Slack and everything on my computer, if I need to get something done, and this is something I, I ask, you know, executives that I work with and small business owners I work with, you know, can you turn off your notifications? And they'll say no. And when we get into the, the nitty gritty of, well, why not? It's usually stuff like, well, what if my kid's school calls and they're sick or they're injured? Well, there's workarounds for that. You can put them on, your, your kid's school could be added to the favorites list and you can allow that one to ring through or, you know, there's always a workaround if you're willing to look for that. So those pre-commitments, but coming back to your main point about having a, a reduced time, time space to work on something, you know, pe- people also, it, this is just a trend I've noticed. The more something works, the more people hate it. And time blocking is an example of that. 
Yeah, I hate time blocking, but I make myself use it because there's nothing like it as far as how it works. You know, I get more stuff done because like they say, if it doesn't work on paper, when you look at your day or your week and you say, this is all the stuff that I'm going to have to do. And you try to fit it in onto an actual like time when you're going to do it. If it doesn't work there, there's no way it's going to work in real life because yep. there's going to be interruptions, you know, and there's things end up taking longer than you expected. And so time blocking is, you know, on a miniature scale, another form of artificial constraint that can help. Um, yeah. Well, it's kind of remi it reminded me of, I think I read this somewhere. They were talking about um, the president's schedule. So this was an old article. It was about Obama. And they, they said that, you know, when you look at really, really busy people like celebrities and politicians and people who are, who are like super busy, their, their days are scheduled to the minute. Yeah. right? They're time blocked to the minute. You know, they're going to, I'm going to be here in five minutes. I'm going to be here in 10 right. minutes. I'm going to be here, right? This is all time blocked, you know? And if you think about it, I mean, which, which, like what came first? Did they become successful because they did all that time blocking and they were able to, uh, you know, get stuff done and be productive to get all that stuff done? Or, you know, did that come afterwards when they got into that position? I mean, look at somebody like, like uh, Trump. I mean, he was a businessman. He probably had a lot of time blocking happening prior to going into this position. So it was probably an easy transition. But mm -hmm. I think if you look at all these super busy people, super busy, super productive, super um, famous and maybe rich people, they're all super time blocked, right? right. They have, you have and, and it's funny to the point that they actually have to write blog posts saying, hey, you know, I block out free time. <laughs> and I'm like, really? You block yeah. out free time? <laughs> Most of the rest of us are like, we have lots of free time. You look at our calendars, it's like practically mm -hmm. empty. It's just got a couple of meetings in it. But mm -hmm. the reality is, is that you're much more productive when you have it all blocked out. It's, and it kind of reminds me of, um, uh, what's his name? The guy who did Getting Things Done, David Allen. Yeah. And, I, you know, I love that system because it was like, okay, if you can't get it done in two minutes, you know, time block it, right? Find a spot for it in the schedule and move it forward. And I love that system. Of course, after a while, it broke down for me, but... <laughs> Yeah. I still, I still really do the, if it's not in my calendar, it doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. I, I don't do it. Yeah. But it, what do you think of, of GDD? I mean, do you think it's still, still valid? I mean, I know there was, it was huge, like about 10, 15 years yeah. ago when it first launched here, but do you think it's still a valid um, methodology? You know, the principle behind it, that, peop, that grav, people gravitate to it because they recognize some truth in it right away. You, you know that David Allen's right when he says, that if, if you don't have it written down somewhere, it's taking up space in your head. And you yep. know the relief you feel when you just say, okay, I, I can't even keep it all in my head. You put it on a list and you're like, ah, that's it. That's what I have to do. And then you can put it in order and you see that, all right, like I actually do have a chance of getting the most critical items done. Mm -hmm. And so it helps with that. The problem that a lot of people have found, like you discovered, is that it's uh, over-engineered. It's like, it's in theory, it's so, um, so complex that it, it counts for everything, you know, but in reality, when you try to apply that, a lot of people find that the system itself is too time consuming. And so it breaks through and you, you end up not using it. And so that's where simplicity can really come to, to your aid. If you take the best of the principles that David Allen has taught us and, you know, sort of, I think of him as like a, having started a revolution where people began to fight back against that constant sensation of overwhelm. And you take the best of that and break it down into simplicity. Um, I recommend that if you're going to use something like time blocking, uh, well, first you do need a capture system, you know, like mm -hmm. Alan talks about, and yep. you need to, you need to have it down to where you can enter something very quickly and it doesn't 
take effort to remember like what tag am I supposed to put? And so that in some ways that's kind of like building a foundation for productivity is to be able to get good enough with software or a physical tickler file system or whatever you choose to use to capture stuff. And that can also be an assistant. I mean, you can literally just, you know, talk into a recording and then at the end of the day, an assistant puts that into some sort of time blocking schedule for you. Like, um, Robert, uh, what's the guy's name from Shark, Shark Tank? Um, I can't think of his last name. He's the Canadian guy. Yeah. He's got like um, a crazy Polish last name that I can't remember. It either. is Polish. <laughs> I, yeah. I cannot think. Um, I can't think. I can, I can hear it in my head, but I can't think of how to pronounce it. Anyway, he's been uh, featured by Agora recently in some advertisement that they, they've been doing for uh, financial investing. But in any case, a friend of mine was telling me about showing up, seeing him arrive for a speaking event. And it was similar to what you were saying about somebody else kind of time blocking his schedule for him. You know, he's told like, you're, you're on the plane. Here's what you're doing while you're on the plane. We're driving you to this event. He's working on something that is scheduled for him during that 12 minute drive. Yeah. He arrives right on, t- you know, like three minutes before he walks up on the stage, he gives his presentation, then he's out. He doesn't stay for the rest of the, you know, the five presentations coming after his, yep. he's back on in the car, he's back doing things. And, and to your question of, you know, which came first, you know, the time blocking or the success, I do think that this, this is probably one of those places where it's kind of to understand the truth. It's uh, what Pascal would have called um, a, 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 a two-sided coin truth or a double truth mm, mm. Um, where you can't fully understand the truth without looking at both kind of opposing sides. And so it, it may be that as we're able to advance in using our highest and best skill, as we, as people recognize that, for example, speaking in his case, because he's a famous public figure at this point, the dollars per hour he can earn for his collective companies by being a public f- speaker is higher perhaps than what he could do by managing team it's better for him to find the best manager in the world to put in charge of one of his his teams and for him to be on the road you know doing these presentations um for you or i you know or any business owner there's always going to be some highest best use of your unique skill set that one thing that when when you do that you do that so well and there's other things that um that really you should trade some of your dollars for someone's time to do that because one they can do it better than you or two um, you're, using, you're taking advantage of, uh, I think it's David Ricardo, the uh, Scottish economist, who first talked about this, this concept of uh, comparative advantage, which basically says, you know, even if you're the best at everything, you're giving up free gains if you don't trade with others so that you can maximize the time you spend doing what you're best at. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You know, that reminds me of uh, Tim Ferriss for our work week, right? I mean, that was one of the one of the things in first things he talks about is offshoring a whole bunch of his work, you know, getting virtual assistants to do this and that. And the funny thing is, is that when I when I when I I read I recently reread that book a couple uh, months ago, and I thought to myself, this guy works way more than four hours a week. (laughs) That's it. It's a hilarious. <laughs> it's a, it's so it's so ironic that you know. Does anybody look at this book and go, "Am I actually going to get down to four hour work week?" And look at look at t- Tim and go, "Wait a minute, this doesn't <laughs> this is not working here. What's going on?" He's not yeah. really working. He's working way more than four hours a week. I mean, even like his podcasts are like an hour and a half or mm-hmm. something like that. So and he does them every day. So he's he must be working way more than four hours to right. get that stuff done, unless yeah. somebody's figured out how to clone him. But anyway. <laughs> what do you yeah. what do you think of the four hour work week? Because that's that was such a phenomenon when it first came out, and there was mm-hmm. a lot of time management in that. Yeah, 
yeah, I think it introduced a lot of people to some basic concepts that uh, just were eye-opening, you know, to, for people to, to realize, to do those calculations of, for example, what's my time worth? And should I perhaps empower my employees to solve a problem on their own so long as they can do it for less than $200 cost to the company? Those kinds of uh, insights for a lot of people were just like, wow, like I, I never even conceived of that. There, there's often um, another side to that that I, I find people spending lots of time trying to figure out how to solve a problem with an employee who's been, you know, uh, sometimes a Filipino employee working for five or six dollars an hour, uh, making a good living within their own economy. But relative to the amount of, uh, of the percentage of a company's revenue they're taking, there's this meeting happening about how that person's not as efficient at this task as they could be. And then I calculate, okay, let's see, the six people here who are here, how much is their time worth per hour? We just spent $680 during the last 20 minutes trying to decide how we're going to stop this person from wasting $6, you know, every two months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something. And so there's kind of these reverses, uh, reverse situations where you have to look at that in two different ways. But I think what, what Tim did really well with that book is open people's minds to the possibility that you are, you're, what you're able to bring in the form of value to the world is, does not necessarily need to be tied to your time. And so um, that sort of unlocking, you know, a results focused instead of a time focused mentality, um, that's really brilliant. And, you know, one of the main things that I do when I work with small business owners is um, I, I ask them, where are your bottlenecks? Some business owners know instantly and they're able to tell me they understand why I'm asking. Others are like, oh, can you tell me what you mean by that? You know, and, and we go back all the way to, you know, that core, um, concept of, well, nothing in your company can operate faster than whatever is the bottleneck, you know, whatever you're producing, whatever widget you're making, if you've got one machine that can only produce them at 10, do its part in that process, uh, 10 per hour, then even if you have another machine that can do hundred per hour, it doesn't make any difference. You've got to focus all your energy on relieving that bottleneck and uh, finding that bottleneck when it's a widget you're making is easy. Mm -hmm. Finding that bottleneck when you uh, are a person who produces podcasts like Tim Ferriss, or if you're a person who's trying to generate some sort of change in a person through coaching like I do, or if you're trying to do something that's a little bit uh, more like building uh, a reputation as some people do, uh, as a nature of gathering followers to then do, you know, some sort of information product or something, it's often trickier to figure out like, well, where, where is my bottleneck? But if we can find where that bottleneck is, then it unleashes the capacity for a business owner to say, we're going to focus all of our resources on that. And I usually say, Hey, let's set a goal. Let's put mm -hmm. a time frame on when are we going to be done with that? And then you look backwards, what's going to have to happen in our calendars in my team's calendar in order to actually prioritize that so that we have a deadline, we know how we're going to get there. These are the tactics week by week that will get us to a point where we can say, done, that bottleneck has been relieved. And of course, you know what happens as soon as you relieve a bottleneck is you discover that now there's a new one. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and then how often is the bottleneck, the, especially for small business owners, is that the, I got to do everything, like the control aspect of, you know, I need to do everything. I need to do my own marketing. I need to do my own sales. Mm -hmm. I need to do my own work. I need to do everything. I mean, I, I need to do my own research. Right. I mean, right. how often is is that this, this this sort of control mechanism where everybody needs they, they need to do everything themselves? Yeah. Is yeah, the is case. the problem. Yeah, the, the 
the entrepreneur's actual time, their own personal time is the bottleneck. Um, if you think of it, that's, that's very frequent when people are just getting started, it becomes less frequent once they've begun to work with a team and, and kind of made it over that first leap um, to understand that they can't be the only cog in their, in their system and their processes uh, for it to be scalable. Um, you know, th when I think about that particular thing, you know, one person's time, um, a lot of people get stuck just at the level of thinking, well, how can you personally become more productive? And there's only three ways you can increase, you can improve your time management, you can improve sort of your energy, or you can in some way go from energy and time to, you know, trying to do something that's more along the lines of focusing your attention better. So mm -hmm. if you have attention, time and energy, and you're, and you're trying to think, well, which one of these should I improve first? what a lot of people start with is time management and they'll go to a book like getting things done and they'll start adding something to their plate. Now it's like, I have everything I'm supposed to do. Now I'm supposed to add on this complicated system and they work on it for a while and then it breaks down and they say, Oh, well I, I tried. It's just not for me. I've got to put out fires. Um, and so what, what I would try to do with a person like that is say, you know what? That's just one tiny cog and, and I'll sometimes give them a multiple choice question. Well, which, which of these three do you need to improve the most? Your time or your energy or your attention? Um, and, uh, and it's a trick question you know, because <laughs> the answer is you, you need to improve your money, cash flow. <laughs> because as soon as you improve your cash flow, you can buy money, time, and attention. That's you know, right. <laughs> you get all the time and money. That's your real goal. Money. I think it's right. funny because it's kind of like that's what I've, I've read that a lot of places is that what, you know, people are saying, oh, I want to be the top ranked website on Google. I said, no, you don't want to be a top rank website of Google. You want to make, <laughs> you, you want to sell your product. Right. Right. It, it, people don't get the, that what their end goal is, I think. Yeah. And then the helping to uncover it is probably something you do a lot of the times. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's a great example though. You just gave, I like that Chris, because um, it, the more you can zero in on what your actual end goal is, the more it opens up the possibilities for lateral thinking. So you can think, creatively outside of the box how can we get there faster if that's the end goal and it's not actually to be the top ranked site on google for example integration marketing is a great example of that you know mark joiner wrote the the famous book integration marketing within the internet marketing circles that was a famous book i don't know 15 20 years ago i can't remember when he wrote that but um you know just that simple concept that it there's people out there who already have your customers and they have sometimes a thank you page that is just unused real estate sitting there. It's like, okay, I, I sell fishing, uh, fishing trips, um, fly fishing trips. And this person sells fly fishing lures at the end of that fly fishing lure. Thank you for your purchase. Oh, by the way, here's 10% off of uh, your next excursion for, you know, this fly fishing trip. That's the kind of integration marketing where you can tap into uh, a much larger source of potential customers than you could be by being the top of Google for one specific keyword that you thought was pretty cool yep. when you started working on it six months ago. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're right. You're absolutely right. So I have a, a question for you. It's like, so based on all of your work, what do you find is the biggest problem with uh, productivity? Like what's the biggest, well, let's start with distractions. What's the biggest distraction that keeps people from being productive? It, you know, with the 
the people that have gravitated to work with me, which I don't know to what degree they're a good sample of, you know, all entrepreneurs, but um, it tends to be the shiny object syndrome. As, as simple as that is, that, that's usually what prevents people from making meaningful progress to where they get to the end of the year and they look back and they're, they're so proud of what they've accomplished across the course of a year. It's usually because they start one thing and they set it aside long enough to go explore some new concept or idea. Then they come back to it. And sometimes the, the reason why that's so powerfully painful and bad for a business actually has to do with the trickle down effect to your employees. Um, I was just actually speaking with Brian Moran this morning, um, the author of the 12 week year. Uh, he does consulting with corporations on productivity and he was relaying something to me that I was, I couldn't believe my ears when he said, I said, I have this exact same situation. Um, another company I'm consulting with and that is the, the owner has an idea and he asks his team to go ahead and get this going. And then he switches it, you know, a month or two later. And what happens is you do that switching often enough. What happens to the employees is they learn that if you just kind of wait and you work maybe 50% of your time, you look busy because really I'm going to get halfway done with this and he's going to switch it on me anyway. That is a toxic culture that creates this non-productive outcome where the employees aren't really working very hard because they know it's going to switch anyway. The person at the top starts getting more and more frustrated. Why can't we implement on the visions that I have? Well, it's because the vision never lasts long enough for us to achieve that top goal that should be one goal to money to finish something that generates a meaningful change. Then let's try the next idea. Yeah. So well, that's I interesting. Should you should say that because especially in the, the startup space, we're all, we're constantly looking to pivot, right? Cause we're, at, we're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to launch my product and I'm going to see how long it, and, and everyone is so impatient for success, right? Yeah. They're like, okay, how long am I going to, and they don't even think about how long is this going to be? It's going to be, okay, it's been out a week. Nobody's bought it. I have to pivot. It's, yeah. been out, it's been out a month. Nobody's bought it. I have to pivot. It's like right. how, how there's no way to tell how long you need to sort of leave something in the market before it picks up before right. you start pivoting. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they're gonna, they're itchy because they're like, okay, how, how come this isn't happening? And then you hear mm -hmm. these stories of other businesses like, oh, he was successful in four months or he was successful in, you know, three weeks or whatever. And it's kind of like, well, you know, your product or service may not fit into that same mold, right? So, I mean, how do you deal with people who, who like are so itchy to pivot, but get them to like stay the course? Hmm. Well, first of all, I actually don't mind if someone pivots once they've launched something. Because they, that means they finished it. You know, if it's out there in the market, yes, you know, you, there's people, let's say you launch a, a course, for example. Um, the best practice is that you're going you're gonna to zero in on that course and refine it over two years before you say whether or not it's truly time to pivot. But what you can do is put people who are experts at that, that conversion rate optimization, that CRO process. You can say, hey, come in here. This thing's done. Now we need your kind of attention on this to gradually tweak it until we get to where the conversion rates are improved or whatever. Um, that, you know, so that's one thing. You can put a team in, involved. But I don't think it's a failure if you've put something out. If you've executed and it allows you to then execute again on a new product. And if you call that a pivot, that, you know, whatever you call that, you're, you're essentially producing something again. Um, the speed at which you're able to produce increases the speed at which you're able to learn. And if we take Eric Reese's concept that really a business's main goal should be, we are a learning machine. We learn yeah. what works. And so if you can fail fast, you know, some people take issue with that concept of 
trying to fail fast, but the underlying principle is valid, which is that if you can execute quickly enough to where you discover what doesn't work, well then back to, you know, if that question of if your results, if you're not getting the results you want, it can only be one of two things. It's your plan or your execution. Then you, you sometimes learn faster and you become the guru who's then able to tell everybody else, I've tried these 15 things. Here's the one that worked because right. you actually finished enough stuff to know which plans work right. versus 95% of people are going around trying to find out what the gurus are doing so that we can copy them. And so if I'm trying to copy someone else's system, but before I ever finish implementing that, I copy the next person's system because that seems, you know, 10% better. And so we're all going for that 80, 20 sort of, I hit it and I just in four months, my business exploded and nobody's actually doing that hard work that you're describing where you iterate, iterate and continue to, to work on and refine one product until it's something excellent. Right. Well, how does timing fit into that though? I mean, a lot of times, you know, you can launch a product and, you know, crickets and it may be because you've hit the wrong time or you hit the wrong market or nobody's interested or the price is too high or the price is too low. There's like, there's so many aspects that yeah. people might say no to a product. I mean, how right. do you know if your timing is right? Is there any way to know that? Or When you say timing is right, you mean timing given what, where the market sophistication level? Uh, well, it's like I, I've thrown my product into the marketplace. I've done some research. I know that there's a demand. I throw my product into the marketplace, but it's just not catching on as quickly as I want to. Is it, could it even be timing that's the problem? Or is it yeah. just... Yeah, well, something's missing. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. And timing, when when you think about timing, I assume that you mean is the market ready for this product? Because you know there there are scenarios where you you generate a product and you bring it to market, and there's not an awareness of even that the that there's a solution for the problem, so people aren't searching for a solution. Right. You know, and then there's markets, there's products where people know there's a solution, um, and they're actively searching for it. And then there's scenarios where people don't even identify something as a problem necessarily. And it just opens your mind, you know, I think the four hour work week was an example of that for a lot of people. Oh, I didn't even realize that working eight hours a day or 12 hours a day for someone else's company was a problem. I didn't see it as something that could be solved. So they weren't even looking for the solution. Um, right. else, you know, they would have found outsourcing agencies long before they read that book. Um, so, so I, I think that there's always going to be a question of timing and productivity um, allows you to discover whether or not there's a product market fit faster. It doesn't allow you to find out whether or not your timing is right. That's to me, that's more market research. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if, if I was going to apply a productivity lens to that, what I would say is that there are people who are experts at finding out whether or not in, in a very cost effective way, in an MVP way, a minimum viable product, you know, they can put something out and discover whether or not there's interest and do this in an iterative way. And if you hire someone who's already an expert at that, instead of first trying to learn how to do that market research yourself and then doing all of the effort to test it, if you have the cash reserves to be able to say, you're going to test this idea so that we don't spend six months or two years building it, um, then, you know, that's going to be the fastest, most productive way to discover whether or not there's a, there's a market. So it sounds like you have an Uber recommendation here of if you look at anybody who's a startup founder or any small business owner, it's like, just focus on what you're really good at and then get, you know, like have other people do the rest. 
even if it costs you money. Like if you've got money in the bank, spend yeah. the money to get those other people to do it. Because you could say, oh, well, you know, market research is easy. I, I'm a rocket scientist. I could do, rec- I could do market research. It's easy. But, right. you know, if you've got the money in the bank, if you've got clients and you've got money flowing in, then the most, the most uh, intelligent thing to do would be to say, you know, here's other people who know more about this specific thing. Yeah. By the time I got up to speed in it, I wouldn't get up to speed as well as these people who are already up to speed. Let me leverage their expertise. Yeah. But then that's kind of like a little notch off your ego saying, you know what? I, I've, I've, I've de- determined that I don't have the expertise in that space. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to give up on that and let somebody else do it. That must be tough for some people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about again is comparative advantage. You know, it's like, let's say that the United States is better at manufacturing shoes than any other nation in the world. But relatively speaking, if we just had a certain small pool of workers and we're even better at designing software as a service, you know, and generating revenue that way, it makes more sense, even if we're the best at making shoes to say, let's let somebody in another country make the shoes because they can do that at a price that generates, you know, profit for them. We can buy those shoes and we can focus on what we're best at or the highest Mm -hmm. So I do think there's truth to that. But back to your question of, well, is that what I'm saying everyone should do? Not necessarily. I, I wish there was like an exact, like it's a yes or a no black and white. I think the reality is that that's a question of, of risk. How much are you willing to gamble in form of time and cash? So you can gamble your time personally as a business owner by going slower and having retaining more of your cash flow, building up your bank reserves. And so that's a form of success. And some people choose that. Um, others say, I know that as an entrepreneur, my job is to entrepreneur, as they say, which is plug together all the pieces that unleashes value for society, you know, and if I can, the faster I can do that, the better I I don't want to be a cog in that wheel. I just want to find the people who are the best at that. So, you know, if you're the best at writing code and I'm the best at marketing it, um, you know, let's work together instead of me first learning how to code so I can do your job and my job. Like that's not, that's not producing value very fast. And so the question is how much of your cash do you want to risk? Because you can bring together all the right people and then launch a product and you discover that, well, it turns out that that product was not as much of a hit. The market wasn't ready for it to the extent that we expected. Um, Or you can do it yourself more gradually, take smaller risks, hire fewer people. It'll take you longer to discover whether or not your product's going to work. So it just depends on which thing you have more of and are more willing to gamble your time uh, your life or your money and yeah. for each person, that's a different equation. Yeah, what's it, what's funny is that, uh, it, we're also, we're also much in a rush, aren't we? I mean, who can wait? Yeah. Right. <laughs> who can wait? So I have, what's your number one, like the number one thing that you tell your clients, like what's your number one productivity tip that you, that you tell your clients? Clear goals. Mm-hmm. So simple that people immediately just dismiss it. Okay. Okay. Give me your next tip. <laughs> No, no, really. But what do you think? Of Scott Adams, ask Scott Adams had, he wrote a book on productivity too, didn't he? Or, or he had something like, and he said, no, not, not goals, not goals. Goals are terrible. Everyone has goals. Mm. It's systems, not goals. What do you think of that? Systems to accomplish what? Systems <laughs> to accomplish goal. Well, the what? goal is like, the goal is great. Everybody has goals, but they're, they're useless without having a yeah. system to oh, yeah. reach the goal. I think, right. that, I think that's what he was trying to say. It's like, everyone's, pushing yeah. the goal, 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 goal thing. And it's like, right. it's true. I mean, we all have goals, but you know, unless we have some kind of a, he's talking, calling it a system, you know, I could call it a plan. There's some way to reach that goal. 
you know, then it's, it's kind of like what you're saying about execution, right? If you're not executing, the only way to execute is to know how you're going to execute. You've got to have a, you know, even if recipes have, a, you know, a directions list, right? You need to know how to execute to get to that goal, right? So, so Scott Adams talks about goals. Everyone has goals, but then he talks about systems are the only way to get to those goals. So, I mean, mm-hmm. some people call it a system. Some people call it a plan. Other people could call it, you know, whatever. But it's basically a list of directions to get to. It's the how of how to reach that goal. So what are your thoughts there? Yeah, well, it's one of those questions. It's a little bit of a which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Um, Definitely one of the very first goals that I recommend to people is that we install a system for execution. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have that system, how are you going to achieve any of the goals? So it makes sense from that standpoint. You know, that's, that's why a person like me makes a living doing this is because people realize that, you know, if I could just put a little bit of time and effort into getting a system for getting stuff done, going for myself and for my company, everything else would unfold better. And so, well, you know, a coach would help with that in the same way that would maybe help if I was trying to get myself to work out. So I'm going to meet with regularly strategy, execution, and some accountability, make some commitments to install a system. So yeah, I definitely agree a system makes sense. Um, But you, you still need to start with a goal before a yeah. system, otherwise a system to accomplish what, you know, yeah. so for each person is different. Some people, their goal in life is to, to be more present and to mm. absorb life, live more richly in one moment to the next. Um, for someone else, it might be, I, I need to be independently wealthy by age 38. For other people, it might be, you know, I just want to really provide um, a good living for the people that work for my company. And I want to, I want to be able to, to, um, have some influence in this world to whatever extent I'm able to influence things. You know, power is good. As long as, you know, you have power, you can do things with that for good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some people just have that mentality of uh, that's what I'm going for. And so if you don't start with, well, what's the goal, then what are you building a system to accomplish? So I, right. I do say goal first, not system. Right. first. Right. Um, now let's build a system that helps to reach those goals. Um, so yeah, it, it makes sense though. Overall, it's a good strategy to, to be thinking about what is the method that I use to execute on and to keep myself going so that uh, in, in essence, you're, you're talking about, um, it's what Evan Pagan from the internet world, again, internet marketing world, he would call it inevitability planning. Um, you know, having, having an agreement with two buddies to show up at your door every morning at 6 a.m. to bang on your door until you come out and go to the gym with them. That's inevitability <laughs> planning, right? It's like, you're not going to sleep in anyway with them banging on the door. And if they're good enough friends, they'll start throwing rocks at your window. If you don't, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, and there, there's a system right there. You know, <laughs> it's like, you yeah. have to have accountability and the accountability needs to, needs to occur. And, and, and so many people have tried to come up with apps to do that, but you know, like you're right, it, yeah. it's different for everybody. Everybody needs that, yeah. you know, their own specific way of getting them out of bed and going to the gym. <clears throat> yeah. And I love what you told me at a conversation we've had previously. What was that method? Something about uh, Amazon will ban you if you don't publish your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is, this is something that I used when I was writing a book. And basically what they do is you can pre-publish mm-hmm. something. So you can say on December 28th, 2019, I will publish this book. And if you don't publish okay. it by that date, you get banned from the platform for a year. So you can't publish anything for a whole year. And for writers, this is great because writers procrastinate like crazy. And if you think, I mean, we're talking about a um, a time. It's, I I host a meetup called Shut Up and Write, which Mm. is basically the, you know, writers smartly 
realize that a lot of people don't have time to write. So yeah. the meetup is five minutes of talking, an hour or two hours of solid sitting there and doing nothing but writing and uh -huh. then talking afterwards. So, yeah. and it's, it's funny because afterwards, it's kind of like an anti-meetup, right? We don't talk, yeah. <laughs> we just it's sit awesome. there on our it. computers and we die. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's funny, like afterwards, everyone's like, oh, this is great. I was so productive, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it's like, it kind of comes back to me. I mean, I don't know if you read Extreme Ownership or any of those other uh, books, uh, Jocko Willick, but he, it's like, you know, if you need to do something, just, just do it. You know, it's like you have to get up in early in the morning, get up early in the morning. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. and his, his, what's his trick for getting up early in the morning? Well, if you stay up too late, you're going to get tired. Just keep getting up. Like if you want to get up at 4 a.m., just keep getting right. up at 4 a.m. Yeah. Eventually you're like, oh God, I'm so tired. I'm going to pass out. So you, pass, you pass out at like nine o'clock. So yeah. eventually these things will work as long as you just, just do the thing that yeah. you said you wanted to do. Yeah. But I just find it, I just find it interesting that- yeah. I love that. You know, we're all talking about tricks and tips and stuff like that. But the reality is, is that we just have to, you know, set our minds to do it. Yeah. Right? To some Get degree. I mean, there are, there are things that sometimes, anytime people say it's just this one thing, I, I usually take issue with it, you know, because yeah. never just one thing. With the example you just gave, for example, um, you know, I honestly, for, with my background as a, as, a, as a psychologist, and I've personally studied sleep and subjective well-being quite a bit there are some biological tricks there. If you mm -hmm. use the teal light, um, bright light right in your eyes every morning at 4 a.m., you're going to dramatically speed up the cycle to which you adjust to that new time clock. And mm. you can stay permanently tired getting up at 4 a.m. if your circadian rhythm is not causing you to sink into s the slow wave sleep and the REM sleep patterns that cause us to really recover. You can lay there in bed and feel asleep but not realize that your brain waves are not actually shifting into the different states that are necessary for feeling refreshed. So there are some tricks, you know, there's some, some methods for where you can set your clock to any time biologically you want it to be in the modern era between using uh, blue light blocking glasses, bright light therapy at the right time in the morning, you can, you can make yourself be on the exact same circadian rhythm as someone on the opposite side of the world. Cause all you're mm -hmm. doing is changing when the sun comes up according to the suprachiasmatic nucleus and your, you know, that registers the, the photons of light going through your eyes directly. Nice. Yeah. You, should, you should write a book on that just or something talking about how to, how to readjust your circadian rhythms. That's really cool. Uh, yeah. what do you, so here, let me, just a couple more. The 4 a.m. thing. I mean, for a while there, I don't know if it's still going on. All these leaders and, and successful people are going, oh, yeah, I get up at 4, I get up at 4, I get up at 4. It's like, it's like, the, it's like the secret to success was getting up at 4 a.m., to, and the secret to productivity is getting up at 4 a.m. because I can get so much work done before right. everybody, nobody else is out of bed. And I thought to myself, well, what is, like, let's dig into that a little bit. Is it just, is it 4 a.m. or is it the fact that there's nobody else around to bug you yeah. at 4 a.m.? Yeah. Like, if you could just, like, go off into a cabin somewhere, aren't you getting the same benefits that getting up at 4 a.m. is? I mean, I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right, Chris. It's, you're getting to the active ingredients. What is the actual active ingredients of success there? Is it the time that has to do with what time you went to bed? Like, okay, so if I live in China and my 4, 4 a.m. is different than your 4 a.m. In, in California, like which of us is going to succeed? That's it, completely irrelevant other yep. than, you know, what we're talking about with distractibility. That, you know, there are some people, um, you know, I was down in um, Miami with Stephen Kotler, um, who's done a lot of 
aggregating research about flow states. And, you know, flow states are those moments where, if you believe the literature, you can be you know, up to five times as productive um, if you're in a flow state compared to mm. if you're not. Um, and so there's people trying to hack, hack this. <coughs> Excuse me. And Stephen Kotler's, you know, with his, the, the launch of his uh, flow research project, um, the flow research collective, sorry. Um, he's trying to aggregate a lot of the, the research about that. And one of the things that he'll swear by is getting up and starting your, your most important work at the start of the day, before you check your email, before mm -hmm. you look at text messages and stuff. And so there's, it may be that there's another active ingredient there. It's not just that you're, you know, away from distraction. It's also that your brain has not started trying to subconsciously solve problems in the background. Um, personally, from what little writing I've done so far in my life, um, I find that I can write best if I have a, a large block of time because my subconscious gets involved with it. Mm -hmm. Like the ideas just start coming at me and I'm like, where did that one come from? Yeah, so much yeah. better than I would have ever thought of. And like, <laughs> came from some part of my, you know, processing this, that's happening at that subconscious level. That can aggregate a lot more information than you can hold consciously. Our conscious is like a little flashlight in a dark closet and you can shine it on all the stuff that's in your mind, but you know, it's just a tiny fraction of what's really in there. Wow. And so, you know, if, if you can start your day without all of the baggage of, Oh, I just saw that email. Even if you didn't read it, you're starting to process how are you going to respond to her? Because she asked you about why didn't you this or that? And so I think there's another active ingredient there besides just the lack of distraction is also you're starting your day with a clear focus of this is what I'm going to do. And there's nothing else on my mind right now. So anyway, I love it. That's great. So this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, do you have a, a website or a, how do people get in touch with you if they want to work with you? Sure. ToddSnyderCoaching.com. Just my name, T-O-D-D-S-N-Y-D-E-R, uh, coaching.com. And cool. um, I keep a, a pretty small list of clients, um, but um, that's where people can see more about what I do if they're interested. Nice. Well, you'll send me the links and I'll put them all in the show notes so people can go directly to your, okay. to your stuff. And you need to write that book, man. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll use set that time down but uh, yeah go to amazon and say you know it's got to come out in i don't know march 2020 or something like that yeah. and then you know force yourself right <laughs> plus you also have to read time it was uh, sorry um not yeah, time when uh, when yeah. that's right when that's definitely <laughs> that's interesting with your endorsement i'm going to bump that up on my list another couple of hours. cool well, thank you so much this has been great i love it yeah i love talking with you fascinating work you do Oh, thank you. You too. You too.